I'm Will Hansen, and welcome to the Experts in the Room podcast, brought to you by Extreme Push. In this series, we chat to some of the leading minds working in the customer experience, retention, and data space in some of the most competitive and fastest growing industries in the world. In this episode, US Players, I spoke with US sports betting and gaming guru Siska Kincannon, co-founder and chief marketing officer at Affiliated Sports Fans. We talk about the US sports market, fan trends, and how brands can get a real grasp of lifetime value. I looked forward to this one, and it did not disappoint. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Siska Kunkanen um, from Affiliated Sports Fans. Really excited to kick this off with you today um, and dig into your uh, expertise in and around, obviously, the US sports betting and gaming market and, and where it currently stands and what you guys are up to. So thanks for coming on board. No, I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. And it's finally um, a great uh, takeover from the Antipodeans today um, with two Aussies. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of our <laughs> listeners um, spread across the world will have to work down through our slang with a little bit of it. So we might have to post up. We might have to post up a um, post a, a post podcast uh, a reference card for everyone in case we get off topic, um, which is probably highly likely. I think. Yeah, my actually my last team when I was at, at Penn, um, they on my last day gave me a, an ossuary of all the Aussie slang that they learned from me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. It seems, it, it, um, yeah, we, we cop it from all angles actually, so it is pretty funny. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it usually goes across quite well. So, Cisco, I'd love to do a brief intro to your background, particularly um, in the SBG market. Um, where where you've kind of spent your time, and then obviously we'll talk very deeply about what you're doing at the moment with affiliated sports fans, um, ASF uh, in the states, um, and just get a little broad spectrum of maybe some of your experience, um, and then we'll dig into some of the real specifics around what you're seeing within the market, some of the gaps within the market, the challenges, the opportunities, um, and so on and so forth. So maybe the thirty second window dressing of um, Cisco and SBG would be awesome. Yeah, so um, I started my online gambling career actually in London. Um, I made the, uh, the 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 typical Antipodean trek from from Australia to to London, um, and uh, and really wanted to get immersed in in tech. And obviously, coming from Australia, we're basically coming out of the womb gamblers. So it seemed like the the perfect fit of a tech provider in in the gambling space so i um was in the marketing team for a company called gan um that was an online um essentially a casino provider so they developed the technology in which online casinos could be could be housed um and we were almost like an internal agency for our clients so at this time when i joined online casino had just launched in the u.s um, it was around 2014, 2015. Uh, it was very new. Uh, most of the market, if not all the market in the US, was really controlled by overseas interests, um, including overseas resources, because there really wasn't um, anyone in market that had much experience in this space. So we effectively ran the online operation for, um, for, for these bricks and mortar casinos. We also had operations in Australia um, as well as Europe. So from my time at GAN, um, I worked my way up uh, to Global Head, 
um, and was brought over to the US in 2017, um, just before PASPA uh, was repealed for sports betting um, and set up um, regulated and free to play teams um, across the US uh, in online gambling. So we had probably about, uh, by the time I left GAN, I was running about 14 or 15 online gambling operations um, and a sports book as well. And um, I left GAN then to uh, run uh, all the marketing for Penn Interactive, which was the online subsidiary of what is now Penn Entertainment. Um, And this was just before uh, they announced the Basel Sports deal in which they uh, went into an acquisition of Basel Sports um, and effectively took on the brand for the sports betting app. So uh, my role was to effectively run the end-to-end marketing strategy for our sports betting app along with um, our horse race uh, betting app, Hollywood Races, as well as the online casino and free-to-play sports and free-to-play casino apps. So um, that kind of brings me up to the point of which in November of last year, um, decided to leave that post um, and start my own company along with two other veterans of the industry in the US. Um, and we started Affiliated Sports Fans, which was essentially um, brought together by myself, um, as I said, another veteran in the online gam- gambling and, and um, online sports space and sports ticketing space, as well as another partner that was running um, an adult social sports league. So in the US, unlike Europe uh, or unlike the UK, at least from my experience, and maybe also unlike, um, sorry, there's my little puppy in the background, Um, and unlike uh, um, uh, possibly uh, Ireland, in the US you had these leagues that are effectively adults, non-professional sports players that were probably a, a once talent in high school and college, um, want to continue their love of their sport um, and join an adult rec league. Um, and these adult rec leagues around the US can be as small as 5,000 active um, adult sports players or members, all the way up to our largest database of about 150,000. Um, so huge, huge, huge companies around the US of these, of these sports leagues. Um, non-professional, just fun sports leagues. And so we did exclusive partnerships with all of these or majority of these sports leagues across the US. Um, And we decided to be the exclusive rights partner for the category of sports betting, um, the category of fantasy um, and similar similar type uh, industries. And we effectively run the marketing program for this audience via all these operators in this space. Um, and really the, 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 the theory or the strategy behind it, which has been very successful to date, is really we saw a gap in the, in the industry effectively. There's a lot of affiliates. There's a lot of um, pick and websites. There's a lot of blog websites that, that also have an affiliation component from a financial perspective. There's a lot of um, other advertising mediums that are very focused on this transactional 
uh, relationship in that it's here's a list of operators and we have an audience that, you know, we can attempt to convert by way of doing uh, reviews for you or by way of organically infusing you into our content or simply by way of displaying you on our website that has got, you know, X amount of million active users a month. And that, that has been successful. Um, however, where we really saw a gap and where I really particularly saw a gap in my time and why I decided to leave was because there's a huge lack of focus on relationship marketing from acquisition all the way through the funnel. Um, and what we wanted to do was find an audience that was hyper-loyal, which these adult recreational sports leagues are hyper-loyal to their clubs. They're also incredibly interested in sports. They're participants themselves. So we know that they're actively have a love of sport, which is a great target audience for a sports betting outfit, um, and fundamentally understand competition and are competitive. And so this was really the utopian audience in which to establish a relationship marketing strategy. So unlike typical uh, engagement platforms or unlike typical affiliates, what we focus on is, yes, getting people through that top of funnel acquisition, but importantly, going beyond that. And whilst we may be on an affiliate deal by way of a financial CPA model, what we focus on is bringing you in top of the funnel and then continuing that relationship with that operator so that not only are you engaging with that operator on your first bet, but we are, we are attempting to keep you with that operator through multiple bets, be the operator of choice um, for that audience. Uh, what an intro! Um, thanks for that, Cisco. No, I, I think it's huge. You've you've pulled out about twenty threads that I want to pick out here um, because I, I think like your evolution into where you guys now are um, and where sorry where you are personally now I think is intriguing, right? So you've spotted a gap within the market, um, a real need um, to to go after uh, this type of this type of marketing that's that's more based on kind of uh, loyalty it's more based on behavior it's 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 really brand driven i think as well um, yeah how so so one thing i want i want to go back to the start a little bit transitioning from casino into sports book something that we find a lot is within the industry is that while at a dressing level um, a lot of the brands will have both um, but even within big brands they're very siloed in the way that they talk about their market, their customers, the way that they engage with their customers. Um, yeah. How do you think that experience, having come from one side of the industry, obviously with GAN, and then moving into Penn, moving into sports, and then being able to replicate that and put it into ASF, into practice, like, do you think that has helped inform what you're seeing from a market perspective as well and how some things are different but they're also similar? Yeah, I think – you know, what, what's really uh, important to understand, particularly in the US market, is that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like I always liken it to when you look at, especially with the big operators that are coming from Australia, the big operators that are coming from the UK and Europe um, and trying to, to really um, get a foothold where they may be 
big fish in their ponds, they're finding it really difficult uh, and in many cases either leaving the industry or having been acquired or folded into another big operator. And I kind of liken it to say say Coke, right, so Coca-Cola, in that, you know, you have – in every single country, the recipe of Coke is slightly different. We can all agree that we're fans of Coke and we like drinking Coke, um, but it becomes very relevant to that market and it changes to the taste to the, and even the advertising changes to the cultural elements of that market. Um, and it's no different in, in the gambling industry, uh, in the US particularly. And whether that be casino, whether that be sports betting, there are nuances in not only how you, how you address and how you speak and how you acquire customers, but really how you retain them from, from simple things such as promotional approach to, um, messaging to, um, just even how you look at sports and how you look at competitiveness in sports and what is the prominent focus of this, of this audience and how do you drive through a multi-betting strategy? How do you move from single-sport bettors all the way through to multi-sport bettors? How do you convert casino gamblers to sports bettors and vice versa, knowing that casino gamblers um, tend to be more profitable for, for operators? And also, how do you... How do you live in a world where you have um, very different regulatory demands um, based on individual states that you don't have in other countries? Um, You know, there can be something as big as you can't do credit card transactions in one state, but you can in another. Um, So then how do do you speak at that kind of individual personalized level uh, in, in a way that will resonate? And so there are real nuances in the U.S. that, you you have to respect and you have to understand. And I think it's that deep knowledge and expertise in the US market that is absolutely critical for success. And understanding that not every single product that you put out there is necessarily going to be a multi-product approach for every single player. Some products are not going to be of any interest. I mean, there's there's long been a focus on we must convert sports bettors to casino and we must convert casino um, bettors to sports. But there is a world that exists that some are just not interested in the other and that's okay. But then how do you, then it's absolutely imperative that you have the sophistication and the MarTech embedded that you know how do we drive you through the funnel so we don't lose you for periods of time? We don't lose you when March Madness is over. We don't lose you when the Super Bowl ends. Um, how do we keep you engaged so that you're not just there for a season and gone? And if you are, how do we drive your LTV so that you're more loyal to us? And all these strategies are absolutely imperative. And the focus on those life cycle strategies are imperative. And I think that there has been a lot of focus this year on acquisition and CPAs and what channels are working and what channels are not. And I would challenge the industry to say that if you are acquiring a customer from a channel, that channel's working. If you're not retaining that customer or that customer's not growing, 
that is a reflection on the retention strategy that really needs to be focused on the MarTech that's going to drive that value. And I think that there needs to be a shift in that understanding even within the US. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting on um, the whole idea of of being able to understand a customer's journey through that whole point. Um, and I think yeah. that within the US, particularly like you're talking about, there's a huge focus on acquisition at the moment um, without that granular level sophistication in and around data um, and being able to understand what your customers or, or your players do and don't want to do um, with your brand. Yeah. Uh, obviously, a lot of that is driven, as you say, by um, the differences within the states about what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, so the regulatory environment, also the differences, I imagine, as well within different fan bases, different sports, um, different products. Yeah. How much do you think brands, or, or, or sorry, I'll rephrase that, how, how far behind or do you see a difference in the way that US brands are looking at retention now and do you think they're starting to open their eyes to the idea that, geez, we need to be working with providers or third parties or building it themselves or working with brands like yourselves um, to be able to start to understand their full player data stack and and really double down on what they're doing there. Um, is that naivety? I don't know if that's the right word. That might be too harsh, but is that is that slowly dissipating within the market or are you, are you coming up against blockers with that still? I think what's really interesting is there are, I would argue that some of the biggest players in the industry I understand it. I think that there's a huge bifurcation in these in these um, companies around what is the strategy. So you have a group that focuses on acquisition affiliate, then you have a group that focuses on acquisition social, then you have a group that focuses on CRM, then you have a group that focuses on data, then you have a group that focuses on product. And really this kind of merging of the minds type thing and who is really controlling the strategy from the beginning. If we're talking about marketing, the acquisition team needs to be deeply involved in what the retention team is doing and vice versa. And that doesn't seem to be happening. So inevitably what happens is, is that they look at ROI at the channel level and they base it purely on the channel versus looking at the life cycle. So what we're still getting is things such as we we only want to work with channels that bring us high value players. And that's very much an uh, uh, an unknown concept in say the UK, in Europe, in Australia because the understanding is is that again if you are a choir if you literally get someone to sign up and go through that tedious process in the US place a deposit and place a bet, you've acquired someone, that that worked, that channel worked. Yeah. Now what you do with that person, that's on your retention marketing strategy. That is on how you drive value. That is still probably not at the level of sophistication that it probably should be. Um, and that's not necessarily a product of expertise of individuals but a lot of it is in the the martech and the third parties that they are bringing on this journey. So what I mean by that is is that I do appreciate that there's a lot of brilliant martech out there that because of the way some of the the PAMs are structured, because of some of the ways that the 
um, the trading platforms are structured, that they're not integrated enough to speak to each other or the work involved in that is so great that the that it's put to the back burner to see as not something very important. And for years that was always the, the comment that, ah, oh, we'll get to that, it's a marketing thing, like, you know, it's more important that we get the bets in, we get deposits and that works and blah, blah, blah. Absolutely true, but now we're seeing the problem with putting that on the back burner is that these marketing teams, even if they are individually highly, highly sophisticated and expert level people, are unable to do this level of personalization at scale, are unable to do channel level relationship marketing strategies, life cycle relationship marketing strategies based on channel acquisition because they don't have the tools that or the tools aren't being used to the level that they could be used um, because this investment hasn't really been taken place and marketing hasn't been seen or that level of strategic marketing hasn't been seen as a priority. And that's really where, where, again, this is why ASF was created because we know that, we, we understand that. And so we want to provide that at the channel that we control. We'll give you that level of personalization at scale that you can't do for whatever reason or, or that, that you're inhibited to do. We'll create that for you. Um, but there's still a learning curve in that because it is so new and the industry is not used to this. And so the understanding that this is more than just an acquisition approach. This is a life cycle approach. That's, that's a, that's a hill that is still, we have to climb um, because that, that knowledge gap is, is still quite prominent. Yeah. I, I think that's, it's, it's so relevant as uh, stuff that we see in market as well, where there's, Plenty of uh, plenty of things that brands want to do but don't have the capacity to turn on and do, um, particularly from marketing teams. And we obviously know the yeah. push and pull between product and marketing that goes on yeah. um, within all businesses too and, and probably mm-hmm. across all verticals I think is important to call out. But um, how would you, and uh, this is a bit of a hypothetical here, you're working as a as a as a uh, as a CMO or a, or a, or a um, CRM manager within an emerging um, sportsbook or a, or a, or an online gaming um, brand in the US. How are you positioning that internally to be able to um, make sure that marketing gets obviously the resources and the recognition it deserves? But how do you how do you go into a boardroom or into a CEO level or a product level and say, look, this is the ROI that we're going to turn around to that? How do you get away from vanity metrics, Cisco? Because I think that'd be something cool for the listeners to hear from your perspective as a yeah. as someone that's probably been in those types of conversations. Yeah, I think, and this is really the key for, and, and there are brilliant CMOs out there, um, but this is really the key is to understand LTV modeling, lifetime value modeling, and understand critically um, what what value or what's, what, what return on investment over time, right? So what is the potential LTV of a player coming through this channel for this sport on this device at this month. And if you know those metrics, and this is where data, where, you know, CMOs, VPs of marketing 
have to be absolute statisticians. Like, no longer is this a creative field. This is a data-driven field. Um, if you know those elements of your player base, you can then start to actually construct LTV models. That's essentially what I did. So I, I had enough when I was at, at Penn, when I was at GAN, I had enough knowledge to understand. I know that out of home, you know, and, and out of home TV advertising, these are all fundamentally um, very difficult channels to understand ROI. And in many ways, it's very much a spray and pray approach. That's all you're doing. And it's fundamentally a vanity pool, right? So you're putting your name out there in the, in the, it's the Coca-Cola strategy again. You're putting your name out there in the interest of when you think of sports betting, you think of XYZ. That's all that's doing because the, the true metrics of understanding, did we actually drive anyone from that ad? You'll, you'll never understand unless you're doing some level of QR codes, which no one does anyway. No one goes, oh, let me get my phone and put it up against the TV. No one's doing to, that. To, to make sure a marketer gets their ROI from their attribution. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares. No one cares. Promo codes on a radio ad, maybe, but rarely. You know, so to really fundamentally understand it, you know, the digital element of marketing is really important. And I think that, you know, from my perspective, that's where I've seen the strongest ROIs in the digital space, um, true ROI. And so you, you can come up with a lot of kind of pie in the sky stats for out of home. Absolutely. And I'm not saying there isn't a space for it. There is a space for it. But to put majority of your spend in it, I think that's where the industry this spray and pray approach has really been the reckoning of, of the industry in the US. Um, so really to answer your question is fundamentally understanding how do you develop LTV models and how do you, how do you apply that against CPAs? How do you apply that against channel level CPAs? It's not the channel that is important. It's the CPA and then how you drive ROI from that. What is the long-term cumulative CPA over a course of 12 months? What is your six-month return investment? Where is, where is your break-even? And being able to provide that at the board level, be able to provide that at the executive level, whoever you report into, and say, I know, I know, fundamentally know at this level of budget, we will see return in two years, in three years. I think anyone that's seeing return in under three years either isn't spending effectively enough um, or is is just fundamentally off. I think, you know, in this industry at this time with the CPAs where they are, three-year, three-and-a-half-year ROI is is generally seen as, as acceptable or good. Um, but you have to know, you have to understand the LTV modelling. And if you get that, that's where you can win win over budget talks. And I think it's a, a really interesting perspective for the US as well that this emerging market is so digitally led, right? Like um, it's a it's a it's a culture that now is you know, you've got the big boys that are playing with acquisition spend, essentially hedging yeah. bets on what they're gonna be able to do with their audiences as states come online. Um, and as you're saying, that's fundamentally broken as approach. Um, as opposed yeah. to being able to look at the retention that you've already got within within your 100%. within your um, database, obviously. 
Um, 100%. You can see that with share prices. You can see it with with how some of these guys have performed, you know, spending three, four hundred million dollars on a Super Bowl ad and not being able to prove anything off the back of it, I think is a, a very interesting tactic that wouldn't potentially fly in more mature markets um, that, exactly. that don't have that acquisition space. I mean, what was it? Was it last year or this year? It it was eight hundred million spent on TV. Yeah. Of a, a two billion spend, eight hundred million. I mean, that is crazy to me. Where, where you've got no understanding of ROI against, and and you have a huge shift of where consumers and players are consuming their content, which is moving away from TV. We, we actually 100%. talked about this recently on a podcast um, with another guest about how brands are so fixated um, at the top of the funnel on potentially the wrong channels um, yeah. without understanding that things are changing um, and putting marketing budget into the right place to be able to target um, their players. Exactly. There, there is a huge risk of saturation in the US market at the moment. You know, I, I lived it in, I mean, you lived it well in Australia. You know, yeah. I've lived it in the UK. Um, when you turn on your TV and every second ad is a gambling ad, um, it's it's an oversaturation by far. And when you go to a game and all you see is gambling companies, which also I constantly critique. I mean, they've just got their logo. I mean, how is that effective at all? Um you know, and again, I understand the mentality behind it. Again, it's this, if I'm present everywhere, people will know to, to bet with me. And that's been largely successful for the FanDuel's and the DraftKings in, in, in the US. But I, I think it absolutely has reached, if not already, it soon will reach saturation. And it's really going to be the smart marketers that are either able to piggyback off that digitally um, and piggyback off their efforts to promote sports betting, um, but do it in a much smarter way from a digital perspective. But really, it's the ones that invest in this relationship marketing approach, the ones that invest in really driving value. We know you came from this channel. Therefore, we're going to speak to you in this way because this is why we, we, we know you, we acquired you via this route. So now we're going to, to continue that relationship. And I know that a lot of the operators are speaking about we're going to pull bonuses from this group because they're all bonus hunters and we're going to invest in this group. Again, like you're not looking at the data correctly. It's not saying we're going to punish those users because they came and used the bonus and left. It's why did they do that? Yeah. What are we not doing as an operation by a product, by a marketing, by a messaging, by a value add that made them leave? And I think this, the the companies have a real opportunity as well looking at their data from a behavioural perspective in that there is the capacity now on websites and within apps um, to really be understanding exactly what your customers are doing on your app and online. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's a really big gap that a lot miss. It's all good to know that person X bets on um, sport Y um, and they deposit X and they deposit x every two or three weeks but if they're looking at content on your content page that's telling you that they're actually interested in another sport or as you say they're playing in a softball league but they never bet on softball then maybe there's something that you can be pushing to them and understanding that um i think brands that are doing that well are the ones that are succeeding and the ones that are not um are obviously spraying praying and 
and picking up those people that move. Yeah. Um, hundred percent talking about the saturation point, the U S as a market, particularly from a, from a, um, legislation perspective, do you worry for the market in the sense that with, with the way the U S can move very quickly in one direction or another, um, in lobbying, uh, in particular around issues, you look at Australia, you look at the UK with oversaturation, and I think there's a big, it's giving a big reason for government to have pushback on what gambling companies can and can't do. Like, there, and I think that is driven um, by the fact that you can't watch sport now without watching a gambling ad, like you couldn't watch sport 20 years ago without seeing a Marlboro mm-hmm. ad for cigarettes. Um, yep. The alcohol industry is in the same bind at the moment where they need to be better at picking and choosing how they're promoting um, their partnerships and brands themselves that own those relationships. So the football clubs, the NFL clubs, um, the hockey the hockey clubs need to be really careful on how they're positioning themselves with this now, I think. Do, do you see that as something that will play out similar to the European experience or do you think that there's more freedom in expression in America to be able to push down that advertising route? Or do you think brands need to be careful in what they're doing? I I think the, you know, it's funny, the regulation in the U S when you're on the operator side and got, I mean, look, I have huge, huge respect for the regulators in the U S they, you know, particularly when it launched, they did look at overseas markets and almost kind of learn from, from their faults. I know that UK is, um, had its reckoning, um, you know, long stated rules that were never really looked at or changed. And it came under a reckoning in the last five years. Um, and, you know, the U.S. tried to prohibit that, tried to think of the future. The problem in the U.S. is, um, and I think this is a, 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 a matter of just time that legalization has been alive in the U.S., is that there still is this massive us and them culture here. You know, I come, you're the same, Will, you know, we come from a country where gambling is just part and parcel of being a fan. And, you know, I remember, I say this story a lot, in high school um, we learned probability through horse race betting. (laughs) Um, That's how embedded it was, you know, in, in our culture. And so it wasn't that, you know, it was good or bad, it was just there. And when I came to the US and I would have people in the industry say, oh, I'm a degenerate, I'd look at them and go, Jesus Christ, are you getting help? Like it was, it, but in the US it's seen as like a, a, I'm a, I'm a gambler, you know, because you're either a, a degenerate or you're fiercely against gambling. And it's very this church and state culture. And I always felt that that was a high risk um, and that, yes, it would just be a matter of time that there's more acceptance. But this industry is like staunch focus on gambling is bad and we're going to tell everyone gambling is bad, but we're going to put all these restrictions in place so that you you don't, you know, you, you have no responsibility of yourself around how to govern your own gambling um, activity is is I think causing more police state approach versus removing it. I think the more gambling just becomes accepted like drinking, yeah, you have regulations, you have laws, you you have requirements, but it's just part and parcel of socialisation. It's part and parcel of, of festive gatherings. It's part and parcel of, of some people's lives. That's really where gambling has to move to in order for it to be, I think, far less um, 
you know, the dark side or, or far less this kind of hypervigilant, um, you know, if there's any wrongdoings, if there's any kind of concerns, we're just going to pounce on it and put in a thousand different laws against it. Um, that fan engagement piece, uh, I, I like the way that you talked to that because I think uh, the industry focused so heavily on bad actors within the playing group as well as bad actors from the industry side and the operator side. Yeah. Um, but the majority of fans just want to be able to put on a bet. Um, how important from what you're doing with ASF, digging down into the leagues and understanding, you know, players' behaviours within the leagues and really harnessing that social aspect, that engagement aspect, the fan fun aspect of it, how much do you think that's helping you guys kind of have actionable data that you can work with your partners on the affiliate basis and then really start to drive brand loyalty because I think the majority of people when they get a good app or they get on a good website that goes, you know what, I'm not too fussed about the odds, but when I jump on, I get a really cool pop-up that has a video of my favorite my favorite goal in the NFL or whatever it might be. How much do you think that that, like that that's where it's going to go and you are, you guys are obviously hoping that it's going to go that way driving those those loyal bases yeah look <laughs> i probably i probably shouldn't say this but um you know i i've, I've also long been a critique uh, or a critic of um you know and, and this kind of drives into what you're saying of the industry's lack of of products and ux differentiation um there really isn't any or much. Um, certainly, I think, you know, if, if you're going to talk about apps that stand out, um, I would absolutely say that, that Fangil has probably got the most differentiation, but a lot of it is, is you know, can be replicated. And, and you know, it's, it's, it is easily replicated, um, but they've done a phenomenal job at it. So kudos to them. But other than really odds or at times promotions, although I would argue all of the industry copies each other, um, there is no UX real differentiation. Um, and that's a problem because what you're establishing is just like no one's really loyal. Like we know in the US on average, a better will have about four different apps at any given time. We know that. So they're really like they might have one that they go to more often than the other. But, you know, they're either sourcing different promotions or they're sourcing different odds or they're sourcing, you know, who, what is, or they're hedging their bets even. Um, I shouldn't say that, but they do. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we know that. And so how do you establish loyalty with, with an audience? And I think, you know, and I know it's, it's been in the news lately uh, for all their faults, but one of the, the greatest things I think that, that Penn Entertainment did was linked themselves to a incredibly loyal database um, of, of Barstool Sports yeah. and that they really attacked it at a community level. You know, they were the sports book of that audience. We are the sports book of you. We are the sports book of the people. Um, and that's how they went in. As we, as we wrap up, I'd love to get um, maybe some of your thoughts of what 2023 holds possibly for the the wider industry in the US, maybe some brands to look out for or, or things that you think might be worth looking out for, probably from a marketing perspective, definitely. Um, and then maybe what what's um, what's coming down the tracks for you guys um, as well as a company. So um, for ASF, uh, what, what are the plans 
for 2023. I'm sure it'll be a smashing one for you though, Siska. <laughs> yeah, I think, look, the, like I said, I think the brands to look out for, I do think that there are some merging uh, or emerging brands that are coming up. Um, it will be really interesting. I think most of them run um, by international or overseas um, entities. I think, you know, from the operator perspective, that will be really interesting. I think that um, some of the largest organizations um, in Australia and the UK have come into the US and really struggled um, and continue to struggle. So I think these new um, these new entities will be really interesting to watch to see how they position themselves. I know that there is one that has really invested heavily in US expertise, uh, which is great, um, and really invested heavily in people that fundamentally have experience in this industry. Um, I think, you know, it's it's fine if, if you want to bring US people that know how to sports bet, but it's very different um, if you know how to run a sports betting organization. Um, and so I think that will be really, uh, you know, um, they'll, they'll be quite interesting to, to see how they go. I know that, um, and that's, that's clutch bet. And I think Tipico also will be launching soon. will be interesting to see how they're a European outfit. Interesting to see how they go. Um, once Ohio launches, um, I do think the launches are going to be very interesting with Massachusetts, Ohio, um, obviously California's off off the, the radar for now. Um, but these will be really interesting. Well, for anyone listening, I think you know who to get into contact with if you want to dip your toe <laughs> into um, proper retention and LTV marketing, um, and that's Siska and the guys at ASF for sure. Um, Siska, been unbelievable having you on the podcast. I think we probably could have talked for another hour or so on <laughs> about four or five of those different topics. We did well to avoid Absolutely. some rabbit holes. We didn't go too far down the legislation piece and, and get ourselves in trouble, um, which was very well very well done from us. Um, so um, I want to thank you for coming on today um, and then, of course, being an, uh, an expert in what you're doing um, and sharing your knowledge with Extreme Push and, and our podcast experts in the room. So cheers, Cisco. No, look, thank you so much, Will. Thank you, Extreme Push. Um, I can't rate you guys high enough. I obviously being an ex-user of your product, um, it really is the future. So I really appreciate the opportunity. I promise everyone we didn't pay for that plug, but yeah. Cheers, sister. No, Bye. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.